0: At the beginning of this kalpa, three men travelled together, a Christian, a Muslim and a Buddhist. They were good friends, and when they discussed spiritual matters, they seemed to agree on all points. Only when they turned their gaze on the outer world did their perceptions differ. One day, they passed over a mountain ridge to behold a fertile and populated valley below. How strange, said the Christian, in village one down there, the villagers fall fast asleep, whereas in village two, they're lost in a hideous orgy of sin. You are quite wrong, said the Muslim. In village one, everyone is in a perpetual state of ecstasy, whereas in village two, everyone is asleep. Idiots, said the Buddhist. There is only one village, and only one set of villagers. They're dreaming themselves in and out of existence.
1: John Burdett is the author of Bangkok Tattoo and Bangkok Eight and The Last Six Million Seconds. Welcome to the show, John.
0: Thank you very much for having me. John, your novels
1: operate on a cultural schism, which is really fascinating. Tell us a little bit about your background in Hong Kong, where you started out as a lawyer.
0: Yeah, that's also where the schism started. I left uh, the UK at the age of about 30 as a lawyer working, and I got a contract to work for the um, Hong Kong government. It was called the Attorney General's Chambers. Hong Kong was a British colony at that time. And I thought I'd do the two-year contract just for the fun and the experience and then get back to Hampstead, London, where I sort of originated from. But after the first year, it dawned on me I was not willingly going to leave Southeast Asia and I haven't
1: tell us about how your experience in Hong Kong led to your novel the last six million seconds
0: well the exciting thing for everybody um, at that time was the return of Hong Kong to China in uh, June at the end of June 1997 And publishers and everybody agreed that it would be a good thing to write a book to capitalise on the huge amount of publicity that was generated. So I did. In doing so, I had to find a a suitable character to to carry the book, as a vehicle to carry the book. And the best thing seemed to be a detective and seemed to be a, um, a Eurasian, half English and half Chinese, because that was the main means of uh, expressing the cultural divide and the cultural similarities as well.
1: Tell us a little bit about how the last million, six million
0: six million seconds plays out. It plays out against very much against the background of um, latter-day Hong Kong as it was in 1997. What you had at that time was 100 years of British colonial rule over a Chinese population which had been tiny to start with, but because of the Cultural Revolution in particular in China, which caused a huge exodus of very talented people, especially very talented businessmen from Shanghai. By the time I got to Hong Kong, there were six million Chinese living there. And uh, generally speaking, at least on a commercial level, the two cultures, the two races, got along fantastically. The British rule of law set, um, rules of fairness, which everybody could respect, the extraordinary creativity and industry of the Chinese people made the place quite fantastically rich. It was just extraordinarily wealthy at that time. But of course, the Chinese had the Chinese businessmen, in particular, had um, foreseen the return of Hong Kong to China and had been assiduously cultivating. Um, Beijing, the the rulers, the power brokers in Beijing, so that when the switch came, the switch of loyalty, uh, particularly amongst the higher echelons of the Chinese, was automatic. And it's against that background, really, that the story plays out. Tell us a
1: little bit about this cultural schism. How did you experience it there as a lawyer?
0: Well, the, um, the schism really is a cultural one, in the in the deepest sense of the word, most of the Chinese in Hong Kong then were um, essentially Confucian in outlook. Uh, Chinese remained Confucian right until the uh, Communist Re- Revolution. So those who fled the revolution tended to have a very Confucian outlook, which requires enormous respect for social structures, which um, posits the family unit as the building block of society. Uh, which demands enormous respect for one's elders um, courtesy and a huge um, quality of uh, politeness between people and also um, uh, is very favorable to any kind of uh, business creativity the british on the other hand uh, my generation in particular didn't and do not, as far as I know, have very many of those values. Those had all collapsed um, sometime after the Second World War. But what we did have was um, a fantastically strong culture of the rule of law. The rule of law really needs to have a background of democracy, which also produced a slightly uh, schizophrenic tone to the British presence there because there was no democracy at all and nor did the British have any intention of bringing in democracy. It was a benevolent dictatorship, the dictator being a a governor who was appointed by the Foreign Office in London without any consultation to the local people at all. So you can see that um, although the, the, the thing worked fantastically well, there was a potential for the two sides to pull away from each other possibly violently, and there was a, a threat in the uh, mid to late 60s during the Cultural Revolution of um, working-class Chinese in Hong Kong in particular, um, favoring the Communist Party, and there was a strong possibility that the whole place would fall apart at that stage. Fortunately, it didn't. It struggled on and became extremely wealthy, as i said, but the, the the two camps were not necessarily matched for eternity. It was almost an accident of history. Why
1: did you decide to write a police thriller set against this
0: background? The fantastic thing about any uh, police thriller, any detective thriller, is that it gives you an excuse, a vehicle to explore society at every level. The hero of that book knows intimately the grassroots working class criminal level of that society, but is also exposed to the vi- very highest echelons of that society, particularly the the british the senior british diplomats and so on, who were running the the place at that time, so one was able to present the whole spectrum of that society through the eyes of one person and that that's of course that technique is not of course my invention I think um, People have been using the detective thriller for at least 100 years exactly for that reason. I mean, even Arthur Conan Doyle, who you could say in a sense invented the, the detective thriller, does exactly the, um, what I've just been talking about. He can examine British society at the very lowest level. He can go into the countryside. He can um, go to the very highest level. He can even travel abroad and uh, examine whatever's happening on the continent there. So it, it's it's a very um, basic way of exploring the totality of a society. Your
1: next novel, Bangkok 8, and your latest novel, Bangkok Tattoo, both take place in Bangkok. How did you journey from... Hong
0: Kong to Bangkok. I retired from my law partnership in Hong Kong, and I thought at that time that I probably had had enough of Asia and um, tried to live in uh, in Europe. But it just didn't work. Um, That's not peculiar to me. An awful lot of um, Westerners who go to live in Southeast Asia find they can't really live anywhere else. I became extremely restless. I wanted to write a a thriller in an exotic location. I did try Morocco but Morocco simply is not really part of the western frame of reference in the way Southeast Asia is. I thought about Hong Kong and went there but I decided that although Hong Kong is profoundly Asian under the surface the way it presents it's very very western and it looks western too. So then I thought I'd try Bangkok which had the the twin advantage that uh, Bangkok is definitely part of the Western frame of reference, and in fact, grows in that sense all the time. But it also looks exactly as Asian as it is. And the more I dug, the more I realized it was uh, exactly the kind of Asian quality which I wanted to present in a book, particularly with the the Buddhist, the spiritual uh, side to things.
1: Let's talk a little bit about the Buddhist aspects of these two novels it's really fantastic it's an almost it's a very alien world view to at least my western mind tell us how did you get yourself so thoroughly in, entrenched in that world view
0: well that's one of the the, the terrific ironies of uh, of my of these two books the two latest books something i never intended and was never aware of i think a buddhist might say well i, I must have had some contact with buddhism in a previous lifetime because I just started researching Buddhism simply because I thought I ought to know something about it. It is the the, um, the national religion of Thailand, and there are about a million Buddhist monks in Thailand, so I thought I ought to know something about it. The more deeply I read into it, the more I realized that the way Buddhism is presented in the West is a very, very watered down, rather anemic, um, almost a travesty of the full Buddhist cosmology which is terrifically exciting. The Buddha and his disciples, in a sense, took over Hindu cosmology and made it their own, changed it to to fit their worldview, presented the world um, with probably the most elaborate and sophisticated psychology which has ever been invented. In my opinion, it's a, it's a thousand years in advance of Western psychology. And at the same time, provided uh, a simple mechanism by which people could meditate and grow within the the Buddhist path. And this fascinated me. And um, instead of me studying the Buddhism in order to write the book, I found that the Buddhism was, in a sense, writing the book.
1: Tell us a little bit about the way that the East and West conflict. You have come up with a phrase which I think is really great the culture of shame versus the
0: culture of guilt. Yeah, I think that is, uh, technically, that is an anthropological observation in that many, many societies, particularly in Asia and even in South America, operate um, in in the sense of controlling the society through shame. That is to say, in those societies, you're not expected to, to have a tortured, guilt-ridden, introverted um, concern with whether you're doing right or wrong. You're simply expected to do right in the eyes of society. And if you don't, you feel an intense burning shame. Whereas in the the Western um, cultures of guilt, what you have is a demand by the society, and this obviously has its roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition, um, to... Examine your soul daily, if possible, or every minute if you've got the time, to see whether you personally believe you are acting within the moral code that's been imposed upon you. Um, so you have actually, what, what they're both forms of mind control, but they're completely different forms of mind control, and uh, it's debatable which works the best. I mean, do we do we really become better people by torturing ourselves with guilt? On the other hand, um, in the East, are people really that well controlled by the concept of shame? And is it such a great thing for people to think, well, I can do what the hell I like so long as nobody finds out?
1: (laughs) One of the things that I also found really interesting was the way that the places, the cities, and the religions themselves act as characters in these two novels could you tell a little bit about how you developed the character of Bangkok and really the character are almost of Buddhism and, in your newest novel, Islam and Judeo-Christian ethics?
0: Yeah, that, that's a, that was a discovery I made in the sort of the whole narrative adventure that you don't necessarily have to have people to convey a sense of character, a sense of depth, a sense of psychology. Probably because um, things like Buddhism, Islam, and so on, uh, obviously they're created by human beings, and they have a, a, a powerful current within them, which I think you can tap into, um, which is what I've tried to do. As far as the city itself is concerned, that was a huge problem for me because it's such a, it's such an exotic city. It's almost impossible to avoid overwriting about it. If you use the third person, at least that was my discovery. I wrote about three drafts of Bangkok 8 using the third person, and it just didn't work. It just looked like a Westerner um, painting an exotic city in the usual broad, rather garish strokes that that, um, so many novelists use in that position. The minute I started using I, the first person, it felt to me like, I was getting under the skin of the city because the central character was simply reacting to the city, the way it pushed and pulled him all over the place, as all cities do, but I think particularly uh, a city like Bangkok. So the, the, the nature of the city as an animal emerged simply through the narrator, the first-person narrator, talking about what he was seeing as he, as he gazed around him, almost like a camera.
1: Tell us a little bit about your main character, Sonchai Jitli Cheep. Jitli Cheep, okay. Uh,
0: Sanchai is uh, the son of a Bangkok prostitute and an American GI who met his mother on a rest and recreation trip from Vietnam. He's keenly aware of his Western background, and his mother in deference to that Western background, ensured that he would learn perfect English. His mother was um, an unusually successful prostitute, um, though not of a kind unknown in Bangkok, in that her customers brought her over to America, to Europe, to England, to Germany. So he had a particularly broad cultural background, which he uses. I mean, clearly, that, that makes a perfect vehicle for me because he can make cross-references between the, the two cultures. Um, he's deeply spiritual rather than religious. He doesn't much mind breaking um, the religious rules, but he's fascinated by the mystical side of Buddhism and is uh, not averse to using marijuana to get there.
1: One of the things I think that's very interesting about Sanchai's perception is the landscape that he sees. It's fascinating because he mentions, as a matter of fact, seeing ghosts, aliens, humans, katois. Tell us a little bit about that spiritual and actual landscape, how you sculpt that as a writer.
0: I... I- I picked it up from the lan- from the landscape that I see. I have not met a single Thai who honestly would say they do not believe in ghosts, almost every Thai. And indeed, it's current throughout Southeast Asia. The Chinese and the um, Malaysians and the Indonesians have almost exactly the same tradition. They simply do not believe that everything ends in death. Um, and of course, Buddhism doesn't believe that either. But the folk tradition of seeing ghosts all over the place, particularly, I have to say, amongst, uh, amongst young women, is enormously strong in Thailand. And once you get to know the people, you realize it actually has a bearing on the way they behave. There are certain buildings they don't want to go into. They don't like um, anything old unless it's been thoroughly renovated. Um, so Sonsha is simply uh, re- reacting exactly as a Thai would react, I believe.
1: And against this almost primitive background, you also have a very high-tech backdrop where you have your hookers and your madams have websites, email, cell phones. Tell us a little bit about that kind of contrast, how you use that in the book and how you experience that on the ground.
0: Well, once again, I think that's a terrific contrast which fascinates me, but it, it's simply a record of what actually goes on. You, you It's not uncommon to see monks in their saffron robes in internet cafes, um, surfing the web. This is, this is something that you see all the time. And there's no contradiction in their mind between the two. And indeed, if you look into Buddhism, there's no contradiction at all between Buddhism and science or between Buddhism and, and commerce. So they're, they're, what they're doing is perfectly natural to them. They see no contradiction. But visually, especially to a Westerner, there's this fantastic frisson between what, Appears to be a medieval culture and yet it's switched on, it's wired, it's on the internet. People are walking around with their, um, with their music blaring in their ears and they're fascinated by the latest, um, the latest technology.
1: One of the things that you do really well too is you play with the mystery format. In many ways, in particular, your newest book, Bangkok Tattoo, it's almost like an anti-police procedural. Y- you do really follow the details of the police investigation, but they're so loopy and almost insane compared to what you're going to read in an English-British mystery. Tell us a little bit about your experience of British mysteries and how you
0: turn those upside down, inside out. That was such fun. That's such fun to do. It dawned on me, particularly, as you say, the last book, it dawned on me that... Uh, I had a fantastic opportunity here, a fantastic excuse for turning the whole thing upside down, because after all, the character was not British, he was not brought up in the Western tradition. And he didn't really give a damn for procedure or forensic protocol, but was highly intuitive. So I can have him make lots of mistakes, I can have him lose... Vital clues, vital evidence, and it doesn't matter because his intuition kicks in, and he gets to the right point anyway. Which seems to me, actually, um, in a way, is is the Western position um, perception of how Zen works, for example. So there's a little bit of um, of Zen in that. One of the things I,
1: I really like too, and I found this very disarming What was the sense of humor. These books are very, very funny <laughs> and, and you don't necessarily expect that from a book that's imbued with such a strong sense of Buddhism as this. Is the Buddhist
0: religion funny too? Absolutely. And this is another thing which um, I, I think the West really needs to get a handle on. The Buddhist religion is hilarious because they they do not believe that the the body, the illusion which we see coming streaming in through the the five senses is reality and therefore with a, a developed buddhist the whole thing comes in a sense a joke not a cynical joke but it's like seeing someone who believes they're in jail but they're not really and this is the underlying humor of buddhism it's a, it's a humor which is taken, I have to admit, is taken much further by um, Tibetan Buddhists and perhaps Zen Buddhists than the Theravada Buddhists in Thailand. But it seemed nevertheless legitimate to develop that in the book.
1: One of the things I also found quite fascinating was your sense of character. Nong and Colonel Vykorn are just absolutely wonderful characters. So tell us a little bit about how you develop them and
0: what you do with them in the books. Uh, Characters in a book like this, to me, have to be extremely vivid. They have to spring right out of the page because I'm not that desperately interested in the plot. That plot fascinates me, but it's not my priority. What I think drives a book like this is the vividness of the characters, their quirkiness, and what they're going to do next, and their total unpredictability. And the unpredictability really is a reflection of my experience of Thailand. Thais always seem to get there in the end to do things right, but the way they get there is so baffling to the Western mind. It looks like someone um, just going in about a thousand different directions at once, and you just wonder how on earth they actually carry in their minds the final objective, but they always do get there. And this can be achieved through criminal means or through uh, intuition or through moral means or... Whatever, and so you've got Vicorn and Nong, as you quite rightly say, who spring out of sprang out of my uh, mind with extraordinary vividness. Once I discovered what their essential characteristics were, Colonel Vicorn, police Colonel Vicorn, is essentially a rogue but with a heart. And Nong is an is a, a ruthless retired whore who is nevertheless Quite religious, so they carry those tradi- uh, contradictions with them, and they and the, it 's exactly those contradictions, and we all have contradictions which make it impossible to predict what they 'll do next
1: in your novel. This is Bangkok. The sex industry plays a huge part. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, this is something that I have to say concerns me um, as a as a person as a as a westerner living there it 's the Um, brutal misperception of um, what the problem is and what the cure is, I have to say that a lot of people become obsessed, negatively obsessed with the sex trade there, for the most puerile of reasons, I mean simply because it's about sex, without getting to know the girls, without um, investigating the underlying economic causes. In reality, what these girls are doing are subsidii- subsidizing agriculture. 90% of them come from the country, most of them from the poor north, uh, northwest, called Isan. The wealthy countries, the G8 countries, spend something in the region of $1 billion a day subsidizing agriculture in those countries, which makes the, the, the price of agricultural products on the world market artificially low makes it impossible for the parents of these girls to make a living unless they are in some ways subsidized. The girls are very loyal to their parents, and also they like the way of life, the traditional way of life, where they come from, their villages in Isan, and and therefore um, sell their bodies in order to subsidize the local agriculture. And to my mind, if anyone is really offended by the sex trade, what they really should be doing is lobbying against the agricultural subsidies instead of making a rather childish fuss of simply arising out of the fact that it's sex and not something else that's, that's for sale.
1: Inversion, you invert a lot of things <laughs> in these <laughs> novels. You invert the police procedural, and there's a lot of sexual inversion as well. Your latest novel features a character named Leck, who is contemplating a big change in his life. Uh, tell us a little bit about your research into this aspect of Thai
0: life. This is something that, uh, that crops up a lot when I'm talking about the book. Uh, the fact is that transsexuals, known as katois, have been a hugely important part of Thai culture for as long as anyone knows, for as long as records have been kept the very first Western visitors to Thailand, who tended to be French and British, noticed that there were an unusual number of tall people who dressed as women and talked like women, but were actually men. And in Thailand, these katois, as they're known, have always been respected um, for making a huge contribution to the arts um, and for being uh, spiritually and religiously very sensitive. This cultural tradition has really, in a sense, joined with the um, the gay movement, if I can call it that, from the West, um, and is now somewhat sort of swamped by it. But there's also a, a sense, I think, in Thailand that the traditional um, family, the traditional role of the male is really extremely difficult these days. And a lot of um, men seem to be reacting, young men seem to be reacting by saying, well, I don't want to be a man, I want to be a woman. So the the representation of Katoya's in my book is, um, in my opinion, a perfectly legitimate representation of what is happening in in Thai society. The Katoya's, of course, extremely colorful and uh, also very frequently are prostitutes themselves. So they actually get mixed up in the book with... with, with, um, other kinds of prostitutes.
1: Your character Nong comes up with a really unique form of brothel in Bangkok 8, which becomes rather a success in Bangkok Tattoo. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that, and has anybody uh, launched such a a venture in reality yet? And Are you getting the percentage?
0: (laughs) In reality, um, the Old Man's Club does not, Exist as such, but one of the first things I noticed, uh, particularly in the area of Nana Plaza which I mention in a lot in the in the first book, was that um a lot of not very young men seem to be having an extraordinarily active sex life. And when I spoke to pharmacists, <laughs> I understood why. Because the pharmacists were telling me that the, the demand for Viagra was, was more than they could keep up with. I mean, they were. it was almost like a license to print money. All you needed was Viagra for sale and uh, you could make a very successful business. So on a Saturday night, you, you can't get Viagra because it, the, all the pharmacies are sold out. And I realized that... Uh, this could play well in the book. And the more I spoke to the, uh, to the let's say, the, the not-so-young customers, Western customers, the men, the more I realized they were all using Viagra and that it had extremely comic possibilities. You talk a lot about the black economy in,
1: in Thailand, the drugs, the sex trade, the fakes, the traffic in... Uh duplicates. Tell us a little bit about your research for the black economy in Thailand and and what you know about it and how it informs the novels.
0: Well, as far as prostitution is concerned, uh, Chulalongkorn University, which is the leading university in Thailand, conducted research, I think about five years ago, and they discovered that the economy simply from prostitution alone um, was more than the um, government's annual budget. Uh, <laughs> um so it's actually a, it's a pillar of the establishment, ironically, and you, you, you get that ir- kind of irony in the East in cultures of shame where nobody thinks it's important unless someone has been foolish enough to make a fuss about it. Um, as far as the, the drugs are concerned, this is a huge problem in Thailand. And it has very uh, very many forms and um, uh, historical references as well. Opium has been used in Southeast Asia just forever. And, uh, of course, it's opium which is refined into morphine and heroin. Ganja, they call it ganja, marijuana, as uh, a weed, as everybody knows. And Thailand is one of the most fertile countries in the world. So it grows absolutely everywhere in Thailand. And there are plenty of Thais who like to use it. In addition, there's the Western import of um, methamphetamines, which uh, they call Yaba, which means mad drug. And with the added pressure of the modern world, um, a lot of Thais feel the need for this methamphetamine, which I, I think is a, is a truly awful drug. Um, but it's very successful, and millions of pills are sold every day. Those, the, the whole thing gets com- complicated when you realize that Thailand has a border with Burma, and the ver- various Burmese private armies and the Bur- Burmese official army have found that um, it's a pretty good way of making a lot of money by setting up a yaba methamphetamine factory near the Thai border and um, shipping everything over to Thailand. So that's how it, that, that all plays, that plays out.
1: Your new novel makes a few trenchant post-9-11 observations about the situation in Thailand. Tell us what kind of, again, how that plays out in your novel and how, how you discovered it on the ground.
0: Well, uh, I'm, not, I'm not here to make any criticism about America and I don't necessarily agree with what's said in the book. I put it in the book because it's, it's no longer realistic to talk about a place like Southeast Asia without recognizing the, um, the quite dramatic fall in, let's uh, say, affection for the United States I think there's, there's been a huge amount of respect for the United States because of the Cold War, because of its stance against the Soviet Union. But since then, um, the the invasion of Iraq particularly shook a lot of people because I think the vast majority of countries in the world are not confident that they've got the kind of um, uh, capitalist democracy which America sees as... Um, good and proper in the way everybody ought to live. And they really don't like the idea of um, uh, forcing regime change, particularly when it turns out to be on a, 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 on a false basis and without the sanction of the uh, United Nations. So there's a lot of uh, switching of um, loyalty, frankly, from the United States to China. And China has not been slow to see the point, and they've been uh, courting the rest of Southeast Asia assiduously.
1: Uh, You also make some interesting
0: observations about the CIA
1: and spying.
0: (laughs) Well, the CIA, um, in many quarters, let's face it, has become a bit of a joke. And uh, I don't think it's feasible anymore to present the CIA in fiction as some sort of super clever, super efficient agency that knows everything. (laughs) If they did, you wouldn't have lost the Twin Towers. Um, And they do you know historically they do seem in fact to come across as a bunch of fumbling clowns and I'm afraid I, I have sort of uh, presented them a little bit in that way.
1: Will we be seeing more of uh, Sanchai Jitplichip?
0: Yeah absolutely I've got a, another contract with Knopf to um, to produce two more books at least one of those the next one features him sure.
1: Has this book been an option for a movie? It seems like a, they would be ideal.
0: Yeah. The option um, was picked up um, two years ago, really. Uh, The problem with uh, the film industry, which I don't know a lot about, is that everything seems to be so painfully slow. Once you've sold the option, then you have to, or somebody has to find a producer. Once the producer has been located, he has to find someone who he thinks is the right director. You find the right director. The director then has to be assured that he can find the right star for the leading role. And this can t- go on for years and years. I mean, you could spend year, years of your life just waiting for something to happen. So I'm not holding my breath.
1: I want to talk a little bit about the literary background of this book. From my reading of, of this book, it, it seems to draw on some of the John le Carré, uh, Graham Greene, what are your literary background? What do you what do you look for? What did you read? What inspired you?
0: Um I'm just sort of ridiculously eclectic. I mean I can be reading uh, John le Carey one minute and Nietzsche the next and uh, the poetry of Rumi uh, the next day the day after that. Um I I just sort of um, grab off the shelf in my mind so to speak whatever seems to be right for the that particular mood and um, proceed accordingly.
1: Your book has has some interesting plotting mechanisms, too, in that you have diaries, you have tales within tales, you have a lot of anecdotes, the third-person spiritual anecdotes and tales. How do you come up with these? How do you place these? Tell us a little bit about how you work within the literary world.
0: It occurred to me that the the traditional way of plotting a book is not necessarily the best way. It's simply the way that's been accepted for quite some time now. If you go back behind that, earlier than that, and look at, for example, at Elizabethan Theatre, which I was very interested in uh, as a young man, you see that other techniques were used perfectly legitimately. I mean, it's very common for a Shakespearean character to suddenly start addressing the audience, for example, Um, And it was very common in uh, 18th century novels for the author to suddenly turn around and say, dear reader, and start addressing the reader directly and forgetting uh, all about the plot for the moment. The the plot would be suspended. And it seemed to me there was no reason why you you shouldn't do that. It's a bit like modern architecture. You know, uh, sometimes a building these days is built inside out so you can see the whole structure of the thing, the tubes and the suspension and so on, from the outside. And it works perfectly well. And I thought, well, that could um, that could be um, fun to play with. And you're quite right. At one point in the book, I actually say this is a flashback.
1: You also address the reader a lot, don't you?
0: Mm, that's fun. I mean, it, it, it's fun that um Song Chai really feels that he's talking directly to foreigners who he calls Farang. And there was also a point in the book where I was representing what is in fact a legitimate Buddhist point of view. Um, and it suddenly, because it's such a radical point of view and so radically different from uh, the Western cosmology, if we have one, I thought it would be fun to actually have Son Chai say, Dear reader, um, that's the only time he says it, and then he comes out with this uh, devastating analysis of what it means to be a human being. So, that, yeah, that was just a lot of fun.
1: We've been speaking with John Burdett. His newest novel is Bangkok Tattoo. Thanks for talking with us, John. Great pleasure to be here. Thank you.